Father, we pray you would bless this time in your word, God, that you would speak through me, Lord, to the hearts of your people and inspire praise, Lord, in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark 7. Sometimes there's no greater place of clarity than being outside of something. You know, companies hire um, people from the outside to come in and consult. Uh, oftentimes, have you ever had that moment where you're like working on a puzzle or you're just totally stumped on something, been working on it for hours, frustrated, and then like your wife or something comes along and just fixes it right away? Oh, there, oh there's that puzzle piece, right? Ah, like I've been working on that for hours, right? Something about being outside of something, something about being removed from something that gives you this clarity, this perspective. Sometimes in the evenings I go for, uh, I go for a walk, and sometimes, you know, having kids, it's just the house gets a little crazy, can be a little bit frustrating, kids are fighting, things are crazy, whatever. I'll go for a walk, and as I'm coming back up the driveway and I look into my house from the outside, and I see my beautiful family, and I see the coziness of our home, I immediately just go, Wow. We're so blessed. There's something about being on the outside, something about being an outsider that gives you so much perspective about the value of what it is to be on the inside. This morning, our narratives, our two uh, stories in the passage this morning are about outsiders. So we're calling this sermon Outsiders. It's about two different individuals that found themselves on the outside on the outside in many different ways. One, it was a woman who was on the outside of the covenant community of Israel. A woman who was outside of her own ability to heal her daughter, face to face with her own limitations. And then we meet a man who is also outside the covenant community of Israel, a man who is outside of being able to interact with people because he can't hear and he can't speak. So two people on the outside, and Jesus is going to interact with these. Now, in these sections of scripture, we're going to learn some things about the clarity and perspective that outsiders can have. We're also going to learn something profound that Jesus intends to reveal regarding his heart and his plan for the outsider. So let's not waste a bunch of time. I want to get into the narrative because this story, you guys, this story is gripping. It's one of the most interesting, compelling, curious stories in the New Testament. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the stories that most people, as they're reading the New Testament, they stop and they go, what in the world is that all about? Are you ready to get into it? Before we do, actually, before we do, let me give you a little bit of a backdrop, a little bit of a background as to what's going on in the, the culture of the day when this happens. Now, Jesus, or I should say God, the Father, his intention is and always has been and always will be to save the world. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only son. God is on a mission to save the world, always has been from Adam forward, ever since the world fell into sin and darkness. Now Israel, the nation Israel, was part of that work, part of that redemptive work. God selected uh, a man from the nations named Abraham, pulled him out. Uh, he was actually Abram first, pulled him out of earth, selected him, and then out of his family line would come a particular nation called Israel. Israel was to be the children of, of God in a particular way as a nation. But God didn't save Israel just so that they could be set apart or better or, or, or separate entirely from everyone else. He saved Israel so that he could save the rest of the world. That was the goal. He called Israel, set them apart in order that they might be a mechanism of his redemptive work to the world. 
So in order for them to be this, they needed to be unlike the nations in order to be a light to the nations. Are you with me? Here's what happened. They went off both sides of the rails. The first thing they did was they became exactly like the nations. They adopted and absorbed the Canaanite gods. They didn't really get Israel, or they didn't really get Egypt out of them when they came out of Egypt. They just looked exactly like the world, so their witness was really ruined. And then after a certain amount of time, God dealt with that through this thing called the exile. He literally pulled them out of their homeland. And when they came back into the homeland, uh, they went the other extreme. They went the other problem, and they started separating themselves so much from the nations that they became racist. They became bigoted. They became uh, really, really anti-Gentile in a way that was extremely unhealthy. And so when Jesus comes into the scene, Jesus is coming into a high, highly tense uh, culture and environment between Jew and Gentile. Gentile just meaning anyone who is not Jewish. But make, make no mistake, God's heart has always been for the nations. His heart has always been for the outsiders. His heart has always been for the world. His plan has always been for the world. In Isaiah 56 verse 3, listen to what God said, he says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am dry, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. Listen, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better, listen, better than the sons and daughters of who? Of Israel. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, that's so interesting. God in the Old Testament is promising that he will actually elevate those who are in the world, the Gentiles, in, in such a way that will in some ways actually exceed that of the children of Israel. God has always had his heart on the nations. And we see little glimmers of this, little flickers of this throughout the Old Testament. Things like, for instance, how many Gentiles were in the line of Jesus. How about Rahab? Rahab the Canaanite harlot, right? She makes the list of, of the lineage by which Jesus came. Uh, we see Ruth, the Moabitess woman. We see even Abraham was really the first quintessential Gentile called out of the nations. We see God's heart for the Gentiles in things like his love for Hagar, um, his love for Ishmael, even his love and protection for Cain, who was not of the line. So we see God's heart really all throughout for, God, for the Gentiles. But here's the problem. The Jews ignored this uh, pretty explicit reality that God was going to save the Gentiles. They just completely ignored it. And instead, they hyper-focused in on the passages that talk about separation and wrath and judgment and war against the Gentiles. And in so doing, they created this very stark racist separation between Jew and Gentile in Jesus' day. Now, God's plan for the Gentiles progresses throughout the New Testament. If you've read the Bible, you see it start to develop, right? Um, all the way from, uh, who was it? The first one that really discerned that Jesus, the Messiah, had arrived. It was Gentile, the Magi, who were Gentiles, right? They had discerned this idea. We see the centurion, this Roman soldier, was the first to acknowledge that Jesus, in fact, was the Son of God, and he was a Gentile. We see the Great Commission where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, starting in Jerusalem, or in Judea, and in, in Samaria, and all the ends of the earth, right? So it starts to develop, and all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, we find all of the nations gathered at the table of the Lord, all different tongues, all different cultures together in one. So here's my point. 
It is this cosmically robust, redemptive plan that is the blind spot of ethnic Israel, but it's filling the screen of Jesus in this particular moment. Now, we've been tracking Jesus interacting with all these different people and particularly with his disciples, right? He's trying to teach them something. He's trying to show them something. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, this particular passage that's, that's particularly strange, Jesus is trying to teach something. He's trying to communicate something to his disciples who are uh, really were raised to be anti-Gentile. Okay, so now just keep all that in mind. Our text is perhaps one of the most significant foreshadows of the reality that God seeks the outsider in the New Testament entirely. It's very interesting. Now remember who Mark's writing to. Who's Mark writing to? Anybody remember? Gentiles. He's writing to the outsiders. Mark is writing this gospel to the Gentiles. Now having all of that sort of background in your head, just hold on to that. Let's jump into the narrative and this is going to start to come together. Verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. From there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. Now stop right there. I need to give you a little bit of an understanding about the place that Jesus has just chosen to pack up and and head off to with his disciples. First of all, Tyre and Sidon were uh, Gentile cities, Gentile area, not part of Israel proper, uh, about 50 miles north of Galilee. Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, where most of the action's been taking place. So you go 50 miles north of that on the coast, and you hit Tyre, and then you go another 20 miles, and you hit Sidon. And why is that significant? Well, first of all, it's significant because of the history of Tyre in particular. See, Tyre, uh, Josephus, the first century historian, Tyre said that, uh, or pardon me, Josephus said that Tyre was notoriously our most bitter enemy. It was the birthplace of Baal worship, which if you read the Old Testament, Baal worship was really the demise of the northern kingdom. It was the home of Jezebel, if you remember the story of Jezebel and kings. In the Maccabean revolt in the second century BC, Tyre fought against Israel for the Ptolemaic, uh, against the Jews uh, with the Ptolemaic army. God speaks explicitly against the city of Tyre in the Old Testament, saying that he's going to to judge them. This is a pagan city. This is a pagan Gentile land. Just to sum it up, one commentator says, Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus spent the most, the majority of his time really in the, in the Jewish regions, the Jewish areas. And all of a sudden in our narrative, he decides to take a 50-mile trip north up the coast to literally the quintessential archetypical enemy of the Jews, to the, the most pagan city really that he could choose to go to at the time. What's he doing up here? It's very intriguing, very interesting. Now read on. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. So Jesus is clearly trying to stay away from the crowds. He's clearly trying to fly under the radar, verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out out of her daughter. So what do we know about this woman? We know that she has a daughter who is possessed with an unclean spirit. Her daughter has a demonic possession. 
Her daughter is probably young. And we know from other places in the New Testament that demonic possession um, would often result in things like, for instance, throwing themselves into the fire. We think about the man in the gatherings that was possessed. He was cutting himself. He was shrieking out. He was going through all of these intensely hard things. So we can't really imagine what it would be like to be a mother um, with your daughter going through these intense demonic possession and, and, and watching her perhaps harm herself in ways that were so particularly hard. So this woman comes to Jesus uh, bearing this. What else do we know about her? We know that she has everything working against her right now in terms of her gaining any kind of audience with Jesus. For one, she's a woman. In this time, a Jewish rabbi would probably not gain audience with a woman. She's a Gentile. Not only a Gentile, she's from the archetypically pagan city of the day, Tyre. Matthew's account calls her a Canaanite. And she's seeking one who is seeking not to be sought. Matthew's account actually tells us that she had to ask Jesus multiple times because he ignored her. And her disciples are annoyed with her. They're asking Jesus, Matthew's account tells us, they're asking Jesus to send her away. How strange is this? How strange is this? She's desperate, she's ignored, she's determined, she's despised by the disciples. What's her backstory? I mean, that's the question I always ask. Like, what, what brought this woman to this point? And of course, we have to guess a little bit, but there's some things that we know that can kind of help us to stitch together a potential narrative. Okay, first of all, we know that this woman knows who Jesus is somehow. She knows who he is somehow because she identifies him by name. In fact, she identifies him by a Christological title. She calls him Son of David in Matthew's account. We learn that. So she has this idea, even though she's a Gentile pagan woman, she has this idea of who Jesus is. She, she understands what he can do. She's confident in what he can do. Otherwise, she wouldn't be so persistent in begging to get audience with him. So what is the backstory here? Well, it could have gone something like this. And again, this is a bit of conjecture, but let me, let me just kind of um, play with this a little bit here. Uh, it could very likely have been that this woman, being desperate, knowing that her daughter was demon-possessed, had heard that there was a Jewish rabbi healing people in the Galilee, 15 miles south. So it could have been that desperate, she packs up and she travels down to see if she can gain audience with this healer. Now, why do I think that that happened? Well, because it actually says in Mark chapter 3 that people from Tyre and Sidon were traveling south to Galilee in order to see Jesus do his works. You know, people were coming from all over the place. They weren't all from Galilee. There was only about six or 7,000 people in some of these cities, uh, Bethsaida and Capernaum. So people are coming from all around. So it's very possible this woman might have traveled down and actually seen, can you imagine, actually seen Jesus healing people and, and all the while thinking, if I could get that power to my daughter, my daughter would be healed, right? It's very possible that this woman is what could be called or has been called a God-fearer. What's a God-fearer? A God-fearer is a Gentile, a non-Jewish person who worships Yahweh God. It's very common. You know, Jews had been dispersed. They call it the, the, the dispersion. Jews had been dispersed all throughout the, the uh, Palestinian world and, and even further. So it's very likely this woman had some understanding. We know she had some understanding of the Jewish God. It's apparent she knew her Bible to some degree. She understood the messianic figure. And she ascribes this to Jesus. So she may have been a God-fearer. She may have had an experience with him. And, and if, you, if you imagine for a minute, she might have gone back to Tyre, disappointed and frustrated because she couldn't get to the feet of Jesus. That's very common. 
Because two weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal how many people? 20 to 25,000 people. The crowds surrounding Christ in the Galilee were massive. So it's very likely this woman came, saw the miracles, or at least heard of the miracles, and was unable to get to him. So she goes back home and thinks, well, I lost my shot. And then you can imagine, perhaps, her friend comes bursting through the door. You'll never guess who I just saw walking down the street of our city. Who? That Jewish rabbi that's been healing people. Can you believe that? He's here in Tyre. The last place in the world anyone would expect Jesus to come. He comes strolling down the street, and they're trying to fly under the radar, and nobody has seen him yet. If you get to him, you might actually get an audience with him before the crowds start to make a circus out of this thing. You can imagine just her heart is pumping. This is my moment. This is my chance. Where did they go? I saw him go into this house. So she goes to the house, and she starts beating on the door. And the disciples are annoyed because they're racist. <laughs> okay? They just are. They were raised to hate Gentiles. It's the way they were raised. And here is this Gentile woman banging on the door, and they thought they were going to get a little bit of a vacation maybe. It's very possible they think that's why they're in Tyre in the first place. We just need a break. We've been healing. Jesus has been preaching every day, every night. We can't get a break. Let's go to Gentile land where they eat bacon every morning, and let's get away, right? I mean, the, the disciples are frustrated by this. And Jesus seems to be frustrated too. At first glance, he's like, he's ignoring her. She's begging. She's asking. Now, let me ask you. What would you expect Jesus to say or do at this point? This woman with this daughter, with this problem, is begging him to help. What would you expect Jesus to do? Well, I would expect, based on what he normally does, that he would help her. I mean, normally, he, he engages with people. He says, yeah, sure. I would imagine he would get up and he'd say, yeah, let's go to your house. Let me go heal your daughter. We'll cast out this demon. And that's kind of how the story would go. It's not what Jesus does. Sometimes we think we know what Jesus is going to do, and we never really do. He always keeps us guessing. Here's what he does, 27. Here's what he says. He said to her, let the children be fed first. Who are the children, by the way? Israel. Israel. Good job. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That is the least Jesus-y thing he's ever said. <laughs> what in the world? I mean, what, how, how do our modern, sensitive, you know, uh, uh, coddled Western ears hear that? We go, Jesus is a jerk. He's called her a dog. What is he, a racist, a misogynist, a sexist? What is he? What's his deal? I mean, this is Jesus. Doesn't he care about her? This poor woman is having the hardest time in her life. Her daughter is possessed. I mean, he has the power to heal her. What is he doing here? It just seems so weird. Ask yourself, if Jesus responded to you like that, how would, what would you say back? I'll tell you what most modern, Western people would say. Well, I'm just not going to believe in a Jesus that says stuff like that. I'm, I'm choosing not to believe. You're not going to be part of my truth because I designed my truth. And in my truth, Jesus is nicer than that. So you must not be really God. She certainly could have done that. 
It's kind of what we do, right, when we read things that are offensive. You know, Jesus was intentionally offensive sometimes. We, we, here, here in a few days, uh, in his timeline, he, he tells an entire crowd they've got to eat his flesh. And they all leave. John 6, 6, 6. Everybody left. Why? Why did they leave? Because he wanted them to leave. He offended them to expose the fact that they weren't really his disciples. Jesus is offensive sometimes. You know, he says things that he knows is going to rub us wrong, and he actually uses it like a filter to see who is really his disciple and who is not. I would just suggest to you, just a side note here, I would suggest to you that sometimes Jesus is going to say things that you're not going to like. And you have to ask yourself, is he Jesus or is he not? Is he only Jesus if you like the way he is Jesus? Is he only your Jesus if he does what you think is right or what you think is correct? I mean, I hear a lot of people say that. You know, I refuse to believe in a God that would whatever. And I go, you know, I don't think God really cares what you refuse to believe. He is who he is. He does what he does. And if you stand before a holy, righteous God and say, well, I didn't believe in you because I didn't like what you did with the Canaanites, thought that was kind of mean. He's going to go, oh, do I answer to you? No, he's God. He holds all the cards, right? So Jesus throws this out. What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to think about this? Now, before we dig into it, I, I just want you to see what she says back. If it were me, I'd probably walk away offended. How dare you, Jesus? I'll go find some other person to help me, right? But it's not, that's not what she does. She answers him, verse 28, and says, Yes, Lord. <laughs> yes, Lord, curios. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What a broken, humble response. And he said to her, for this, what? For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Something about what she just said has absolutely changed the entire scene. And Jesus says, because of what you just said, your daughter is healed. Guys, he doesn't even say be healed. He doesn't even go to her house. It's just done. How much power does Jesus have here? How much power does he have? And her, being full of faith, doesn't send someone to go check. She just goes believing that it is so in her heart. Verse 30, she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. What are we to do with this? What are we to make of this? How are we to think about this? What was it about her response that was so faith-filled? Matthew's account says that Jesus explicitly said, this woman has great faith. Great faith. Let me give you a few things to think about here. First of all, you need to know that Jesus knows this woman. It's not as though Jesus is, is sort of just hanging out of the house and some random person shows up at the door. Jesus formed this woman in her mother's womb. Jesus, who is God, knew this woman before the foundations of the earth. Jesus knew her backstory. 
Jesus had, yes, he was fully God, he was also fully man, but the Father, by the Spirit, in many ways, would give him this ability to understand and know things. Think about, um, uh, who's it, Nathaniel under the tree, right? Jesus had this ability to understand what's going on. He knows her backstory. Let's not be so foolish to assume that Jesus is just walking blind, going off of what he feels. He knows exactly who's at the door. He knows exactly what this woman's going through. He's exactly tuned in to what she needs and what she needs to hear and how he's going to engage with her. And you notice Jesus engages with every person completely different. He's very customizable in that. He, he, he engages with her in a very particular way. So I want you to note that. The second thing I want you to know is that what Jesus is doing here is he's putting before her a parable. He's not saying explicitly, you're a dog, leave. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, let me put forth a parable. The parable is this, that the children in the house are to eat first before the dogs. Okay, so that's a parable. And he puts that forth to see if she can determine what that parable is about, to see if she can translate it, if she can get the key to the mystery, right? The other thing I want you to know is that there's two Greek words for dog. Okay, there's two Greek words for dog. The first Greek word for dog is the mongrel, um, trash-eating, rampant, rabid, garbage-eating dogs that live out in, in the, the Palestinian world. That, that was the word that was used to describe Gentiles in a racist, bigoted way. Okay? Then there's another word for dogs, and that's a diminutive, domesticated dog, a house dog. A dog, um, you know, they probably didn't have little cute poodles then, but they did have dogs that would be part of the family, part of the house, that would be walking around the house, that would be fed from the master's table. Which word do you think Jesus uses? He uses the second one. He calls her not not a rabid, wild, crazy dog. He calls her part of the house. She's she's a domesticated. Okay? You're saying, well, I don't care. It's still a dog. Okay. Okay. Fine. I just want you to know those details. Those are important things when it comes down to discerning this. The other thing I want you to notice is the word first. The word first. See, he says, let the children be fed what? First, what's the implication? There's more feeding to come, okay? And she picks up on that. She picks up on that. So what are we to see in her response? What is it about her response that is so implicit that she has this great faith that Jesus is so amazed by her? First thing I want you to see is this. She interprets the mystery hidden within the parable. Jesus would preach in parables, According to his own teaching, he said, I preach in parables to blind those that don't want to see and to reveal truth to those that do. He would preach in parables to see who would get it because those who the Father would reveal it to, they would get it. So he's presenting a parable for her to see if she can see herself within it. And this is what's incredible about the way she interprets it is that she doesn't just listen to it. She sees herself within it. She says, I actually know where I'm at in that parable. And I'm, at the, and I'm at the foot of the table. She interprets the parable. She sees what is concealed about the kingdom in the truth of the parable. And that is simply this, that the, the kingdom of God is expansive, that it is like leaven in a lump. A little bit is going to cause the whole lump to rise. What she is aware of, guys, here's the deal. She knows her Bible. She knows her Bible. She's read the scriptures. She's read Isaiah 56. She knows that God has plans and intentions for the Gentiles, that God is the God of the outsiders, that God has plans for the world. She knows those scriptures. And so she sits before Jesus, and Jesus tests her by saying, 
Why should I feed the dogs under the table when the children need to be fed first? And her response is, well, I know what you said. I know what the Bible says. I know what God's word says. And God's word says that everyone in the house will be fed. She takes him at his word. She knows, or Jesus knows, I should say, he would be rejected by ethnic Israel. And the door at this moment begins to open to true Israel. What do I mean by ethnic Israel and true Israel? Ethnic Israel just means that you, were, you happen to be born into the Israeli bloodline. But the New Testament makes it clear that there's this other reality called true Israel. And what is the, the binding factor of what makes you part of true Israel? Well, those are good answers. Love it. Faith. Faith, I would say, to put a finer point on it. It's faith that gives you access to the body of Christ. It's faith in Jesus. Someone said Jesus. I'm putting it all together. Uh, it's faith in Jesus that gives you access to become true Israel, right? And so in this moment, what's happening is that Jesus is seeing this woman, and she, he knows that she is true Israel. It's really an incredibly beautiful thing. There's this amazing thing happening that Jesus is aware of, and he wants his disciples to be aware of it, and that is that at one point, God is going to open the door to the entirety of the world, that all of the world can now believe and hear the gospel. There's many different places where Jesus talks about this. One is when Jesus heals the centurion's servant, Another Gentile, remember this? Uh, this Gentile Roman centurion comes to Jesus and he goes, hey, you're the boss. You don't even need to come to my house. I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. Just say the word and heal my servant. And Jesus is like, nowhere in Israel have I found this great of faith. And then he does the same thing that he did here with this woman. He heals without even going there. He, and, then, and then in that moment, he, he turns and he makes a very interesting statement. He makes a very interesting, he says that the kingdom, that the table of, of God will be filled with people from south, east, west, north, and that the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. What is he talking about there? He's talking about this fact that ethnic Israel is going to reject Jesus and put him on a cross, but the door will be open to true Israel, and true Israel, which will also contain some Jews, like the Apostle Paul and Peter and the disciples, is now going to be open to the world. It's an incredible reality. It's a credible theological reality. But it's not what I want you to zoom in on primarily here. What I want you to primarily zoom in on here is this. Jesus came here for this woman. He came here. Why? Because Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. Where are the 99? The 99 are in Galilee. Where is the one? She's in Tyre. She is, she is, by all accounts and purposes, she's a believer. And I believe that Jesus went to Tyre for this woman. He went to get her. And in doing so, he has elevated her from the place below the table to having a seat at the table and made her part of the feast of the Lord. You know what's happening here? She has learned the lesson of the loaves that the disciples have not what was the lesson of the loves? You remember? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Follow me. Okay. Jesus multiplies bread and feeds 20,000 people. And the disciples are just totally dumbfounded by it. And then the, the same night, they get on the boat. Remember we talked about this? They get on the boat, and Jesus comes walking on the water, and the wind is strong. And as soon as Jesus gets on the boat, the wind ceases. 
right? And, and, and they're completely amazed by this. And then Mark adds this little note. They were amazed because they did not learn the lesson of the loaves. And then we see uh, a couple days later, Jesus feeds 4,000. We'll look at that next week. After he feeds 4,000, they get on a boat again, and they're going back across, and Jesus is warning them about something. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're over there distracted, having an argument or something, having a conversation, thinking Jesus is upset with them because they didn't bring enough bread. And Jesus in that moment goes, what you, why are you worried about not bringing enough bread? I am the bread. Remember we talked about this? I am the bread of life. So what Jesus is doing in this moment is she's going, I'll take the crumbs from the table because the crumbs from the table are better than anything that this world has. See, Jesus is the bread of life. He's such satisfying bread. He's such sufficient bread that even the crumbs from the bread of life that fall from the table are enough for me, she says. She sees that that bread is so sufficient. And what is the bread? It's not what he gives. It's who he is. She's like, I'll take the crumbs. Is that how you feel about Christ? Is that how you feel about Christ? Jesus is the bread. The house of her Lord, the house of her God, is so abundant and well supplied that the food is spilling off the table. And she can be full because she knows of the abundance of the table. This is what she's saying to Jesus right here. She's saying, hey, you know what? I know. I'm not a child of Israel. I know I wasn't born into this ethnic group. I get that. But I know what the Bible says. I know God loves the outsider. And I know the table of my Lord is spilling with food. And I'm just going to sit down here and take whatever falls off. Because the master of my house feeds the dogs really well. Man, the the dog in our house, she eats good. Why? Because I got a four-year-old and a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And they eat good, and the food falls, and she eats it. Jesus isn't calling this woman a dog. Jesus is testing this woman. How abundant do you think the table of the master is? How good do you think the master of the house is? How satisfying is the bread? And her answer says it all. It says it all. She's like, you have more than enough, and I know you. I've watched you. I've heard you. And I know the God that you serve. I know, the, I know your father. I know his heart. It's the same thing the disciples couldn't get. They couldn't understand it. They keep thinking that they need to pack bread. And Jesus is just over there like, guys, I'm the bread. I'm the bread. I'm the bread. And here's this Gentile woman from Tyre. She's like, you're the bread. You can do it. I can almost just picture Jesus looking at his disciples like, she gets it. She gets it. That's my point. My point is that sometimes when you're on the outside of things, you have really good clarity. You know that? This woman, she clearly feared the Lord. She clearly read his word. And she'd been looking from the outside in, looking at Israel, thinking, oh, if only I could be on the outside. Yet simultaneously, we have those on the inside who are about to crucify Jesus, the bread of life. Why? Because they're spoiled brats at the table that don't want to eat their food. And what's going to happen here is that Jesus is going to elevate those who are at the foot of the table, like Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, the cripple who didn't deserve to have a seat at the table? It's a beautiful reality. 
here, what we see in this is, is not only a portrait that God is going to include the Gentiles, that's certainly the theological point here, but what we see here is a portrait of salvation by grace through faith. Why? Because this woman is not confident, listen, in her deserving of God's grace. She's confident in the ability of God to show grace. What does she say when he says, the dogs don't eat from the table? She says, I know, and I understand, and I admit my need. I know I don't deserve your grace, but I also know that you can give it and that you will. She acknowledges his lordship. She admits her station and her need, and she believes in the abundance of the table of the kindness of the master. And guys, we share her story. We share her story. You know that? We, we are Gentiles. Did you know that? <laughs> Unless there's somebody in here that's Jewish. I don't know. But we, we're Gentiles, right? We are outsiders, Ephesians says, to the blessings of the riches of, of ethnic Israel. We don't have a lineage back to Abraham and David. Our lineage is that we are from the pagan, idolatrous, Baal-worshipping, whatever. This, this is where we're from. We're separated from the covenant promises of God uh, with a sin lineage that traces back to our father, Adam. We're people of rebellion. Our very presence is unacceptable in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And even our best works are filthy minstrel rags, according to the Bible. I have nothing that should make God want to give me kindness. There is nothing about me that is worthy of his grace. And what this woman does is she admits that. You know what that is? That's saving faith. It's called repentance. It says, I get that I don't deserve it, but I believe that you're good. In order to share this woman's blessing, we have to share her faith. We have to share her disposition, her demeanor, which is to admit that she is a creature of need, to admit that she has fallen short, and then to plead with confidence in the grace and kindness of God. You know, saving faith is simply taking God at his word. It's choosing to believe that God is who he said he is, that he's done what he said he's done, that he'll do what he said that he will do. This is what makes you part of true Israel. I believe God's word. I believe it. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it, but I believe it. His grace is applied to me because he is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does. And I believe it. There's power in that belief, saving power, so much power that Jesus reserves his best miracles for those that have that kind of faith. Not because the faith accesses the miracle, but because Jesus reveals his miracles to those who believe. She believes. And so Jesus heals without even having to go there. It's incredible. I just can't help but think of this song. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast, listen, I will not boast in anything 
no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Never forget the clarity that came the first time you realized that you were forgiven and accepted and elevated to the table of the Lord. Never forget that. It's so clarifying. This woman has such clarity. And I ask you guys, what if Jesus were to come to you right now and say, why should I save you? You just sinned this morning 20 times. Why should I love you? I am perfect, holy, righteous, unblemished, eternal, perfect in every way. You are a train wreck. Why should I love you? How would you respond to him? I would hope, believer, that you would respond the same way this woman responds. Because, Lord, you have said that you sent your son to absorb the wrath for my sin and that you've accredited righteousness into my account and that when you look at me, you don't see my failure, you see the perfection of Christ. And because I believe that and I believe your word, I know that I truly can be accepted. You know what Jesus is doing here in this moment is he's testing this woman by telling her what the Jews say, are saying about her. He's testing her to see if she's going to believe his words or their words. And I want to ask you, whose words are you believing? Whose words are you believing? You have an enemy who is trying, his number one goal, his, listen, his number one goal is not to, to get you on drugs or to get you uh, into some kind of sin, that too. His primary goal is to get you to st stop believing the gospel. That's what he wants you to do. He either wants you to keep you from believing the gospel or he wants to stop you from believing the gospel. And when Satan comes and says, you're not worthy, you go what? You go, I know. Isn't it brilliant? I'm not worthy. And when Satan comes to you and says, you sinner, you go, I know. And God is so good. And Satan comes to you and says, you don't deserve to be at the table of the Lord. You say, I know. But the crumbs are enough you preach the gospel to the enemy. You preach the gospel to yourself. And you say, I know what God has said and what God has done, and I believe it. And it is applied to my life. And that is why Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near, draw near to what? Draw near to the throne of God with a true heart, with full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean. He says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We are to draw confidently to the Lord. We got to keep going. Verse 31. Let's meet the other outsider. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. That's, by the way, that's kind of funny because that's like saying, uh, I went to Salem and then I came back through Portland. Okay, think about that, right? Uh, I don't know why he did that. We don't know. 
Tyre, through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. What should the Decapolis remind us of? The Decapolis is the area where Jesus healed the man of the Gadarenes who was possessed with demons called Legion. So Jesus has a name for himself already in this area. 32, they brought to him, the crowds, brought to him a man who was deaf, had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. You know, it's unclear exactly what the motive of this crowd is, but what we do know is that uh, they bring this deaf man and they probably want to see something happen. Hey, Jesus is in town. Hey, go get that deaf guy. Let's see what happens. Let's, let's bring him and see if we can elicit some kind of entertaining miracle, right? So they go, they get him, they put him before Jesus. And now this man, this is what connects these two passages. This man is totally an outsider. He's probably a Gentile, by the way. This is a Gentile region. He's outside of the ability to hear or speak. He's disconnected. He's a total outsider. And that's why I think Mark groups these together. I think there's a similarity here. This Gentile outsider. So they bring him along, verse 33. And Jesus, taking him aside from the crowd privately, put his fingers into his ears. Speaking of weird stuff, okay. Put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting... Touched his tongue, like you do. I mean, I do that all the time to people. And they're always like, what did you do? Why do you do that? I'm like, well, Jesus did it, you know? Tui. And looking up to heaven, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which is Aramaic, that is, be opened. Now, all I want you to see here is I want you to see the kindness of Jesus in the way that he saves. The kindness of Jesus in the way that he works. First of all, he pulls this man from the boring eyes of the crowd looking to see a show. He pulls him aside and he personally and specifically interacts with this man. Then he kindly uses sign language to communicate to a deaf man how he's going to heal him. He says, ears first, spit, don't know what that's all about, whatever, read a commentary, spit, (laughs) touches his tongue, you're going to be able to talk, it's coming from heaven. Okay, ears, mouth, heaven. This guy gets it. And then in his own Aramaic tongue, in the common tongue of the, of the land, he says, be open. I want you to see one word here that I think is so interesting. And that is that Jesus sighed. Do you see that? You just read right over it. 34, looking up to heaven, he sighed. Why is Jesus sighing? Well, nobody really agrees. But I have my opinion. The word sighing actually means, it can be translated groaning. I think the same thing is happening here that happened at the tomb of Lazarus. Remember when Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus? Like, why is he weeping? He knows he's going to raise the guy from the dead. What's he weeping about? Because Jesus feels pain. He's empathetical. He feels the sorrow. He feels this man's deafness. He feels this man's struggle. And he lets out a sigh. This week I had a, a week where I just let out a lot of sighs. A lot of brokenness, a lot of sick people right now in our church, a lot of struggle, a lot of hard things. There was multiple times where I just went, oh, and I went, oh, that's what, that's what Jesus is doing there. This is hard. This is tough. He's so kind. In 35, he healed, or the, the other kind thing he does is he heals him. Verse 35, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. This man is given the gift of new ears so that now he could have the gift of a new heart because the first thing that Jesus would get to, or the first thing this man gets to hear now is the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God. Jesus gives him new ears so that he can hear a new word and get a new heart. Isn't that cool? What a beautiful portrait of salvation. I love it. 
36, we've got to wrap it up. Keep, he, 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, listen, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and mute speak. God's really good at saving people. He's really good at He does all things well. What God does, he does well. Ephesians 1 says that God, before the foundations of the earth, had been calling you. And he used all wisdom and all knowledge and all of eternity to save you if you've believed that gospel. He's good at what he does. So just stepping back and wrapping up here, what are we to do with these two passages? I just want you to remember a few things. Number one, God is on mission to save the outsider. God is on mission to save the outsider. Never count someone out because they're on the outside. It may be that the person on the outside has just the right perspective to come onto the inside. The broken, that's who Jesus came for. Why? Because they get that they need grace. May we never forget the perspective of the outsider, the ripe soil for salvation. Salvation is available for all who will simply take him at his word. It's a beautiful thing. And sit before him at his table. The believer that never loses the perspective of the outsider grows most abundantly. Now, I just want to end by asking you some questions, and, and, and I just want you to reflect on these questions this week, okay? Just reflect on these questions. What do we need to learn from this woman? She's such a great illustration. We need to think about this. First of all, ask yourself, when the reality of your shortcomings and failures and sins and mistakes come to light, and they do, are you offended at Jesus for exposing them? Or do you readily admit your station and depend wholly on the kindness in Jesus to heal you? There are going to be moments where Jesus is going to expose the reality of your need kindly. And in that moment, you can either be offended and walk away, or you can throw yourself at his mercy and go, I know that your grace can cover this. Your grace is sufficient. The enemy doesn't want you to believe that. Ask yourself this. When you consider your status with God, do you see yourself as an entitled child deserving a seat at the table? Or do you always remember how fortunate you are to receive even the crumbs of his life-giving bread? Never forget that. Question number three. Is Jesus, or Jesus is the bread of life. Do you prize even the crumbs from his table over the empty feasts of this world? Fourthly, are you simply a spectator in the crowd, watching Jesus work in others? Or have you let him separate you from the crowd and begin personally interacting with your brokenness? I want you to see that in the story of Jesus with this deaf man. He pulls him apart from the crowd. At some point, in order to have saving faith with Jesus, you need to have that moment with him apart from the crowd. You need to interact with him personally. And lastly, when the enemy comes to tell you truths regarding, notice I said truths, not lies. When the enemy comes to tell you truths regarding your former identity, do you walk away from the table defeated? Or do you stand firmly on the ground of God's word, letting Jesus escort you to your seat? This story could have gone so different. This woman could have been offended at Jesus and left angry. This woman could have been discouraged by his statement and said, you're right. But instead, she believed in what she knew to be true of his word and his nature, 
And Jesus kindly picks her up and sets her at the table. Isn't that beautiful? He's so kind in the way that he does that. He's so good at the way that he saves. Never forget the clarity that comes from remembering that you were once on the outside and you've been adopted, son, daughter of God. His table. Guys, we will spend eternity feasting at the table of the Lord, the marriage supper of the Lamb. His table is abundant. Jesus says, I'm going to make a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. There's much food at the table. Jesus says, I can't wait to eat this meal with you again. Isn't that great? You guys have your communion cups? If you don't have them, they're at the back there at the table. Um, we're going to take communion together this morning. Normally, we break into groups and have some discussion, but this morning, I just felt like we really needed to stop and reflect and remember like Jesus taught us to do. He said, do this in remembrance of me. There's so many things that the table represents. It represents the, the body and the blood of Jesus' atoning work. It represents the unity and the fellowship that we have together as one family, one organism that's united in Christ. It also recognizes the fact, it remembers the fact that Jesus is, that Jesus is the all-sufficient, all-sustaining bread of life. So Father, we thank you so much this morning that you are the bread of life. Oh God, we've, we've feasted from the swamps, the garbage of this world for too long. Lord, we want to come to your table this morning. We want to be satisfied and filled by nothing more than the beautiful reality of your grace and kindness. And as we hold this bread-like substance in our hand, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your body that was broken so that we could live. Lord, this morning we take it in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, let's take together. Mike, you can come on up. Father, we thank you so much for the reality of what the blood represents. That Jesus, you took the cup of wrath that we deserved and drank it all the way down so that we, Lord, live no longer under your wrath but only under your acceptance and kindness. Jesus, you shed your blood so that ours would not have to be. And now, Lord Jesus, your blood flows through our veins as we are born again by your spirit. So thank you, Jesus, for the cup. We remember it. We praise you for it. We love you, and we drink together. Well, let's stand, guys. Let's sing one more song.